At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 17. Matthew chapter number 17. You know, in the last month, we have spoken at a Weekend to Remember marriage getaway in Naples, Florida, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and as we said, also in La Jolla, California. And in some ways, I've been unsure whether I'm coming or going. It's been a, a wild and crazy month. But one of the things we often share when we're at these, we would say, hey, we're from Oklahoma. And in Oklahoma, we live in tornado country. And often in tornado country, that means we are going to be in an era of time when we are without power, when we lose power. And one of the things we relate to them, and you, you understand what I'm talking about here, is that when we lose power, when we're without power, life gets hard, life gets rough, life gets tough. And the reason why is our reliance on electrical power is all-encompassing, is it not? Think about the last time you lost power. Well, in a similar, similar way, you can take the Christian life, and without divine power and without divine grace, the Christian life gets really hard, it gets tough, it gets rough. In fact, it can be grueling and it can be draining. And our need for his power every day is all-encompassing. And I think it's important for us to admit and remind ourselves of that truth from time to time. I mean, we really do need to do that to ourselves and to God and to say to him, our own power is pathetic. I mean, when's the last time you just communicated that to God? Lord, my own power is pathetic. It's true, and yet we have this natural self-tendency to go self-reliant in our walk with God. And I want you to know, every time we go to a weekend to remember, it's a big concern of mine. I've been speaking at these for 23 years, and we have seen God work. We have seen spiritual success. We have seen people trust Christ. We have seen marriages strengthened. We have seen renewed hope in families. And it is just very easy because we've seen that time and time again to start functioning on autopilot. And see, men and women, I, I know my own heart tendencies. I know my own heart tendencies. And so when I go to these weekends and we have this pre-weekend prayer time with the speakers and the other people who are coordinating the weekend, and one of the things I always try to make sure we do is that we pray a prayer that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where we pray this prayer. Lord, we want this weekend to be a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's what Paul told the Corinthians when he first came to them. He says, my ministry to you was a demonstration of the Spirit and power so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And we need to do that in our own individual spiritual lives. You see, here's what's possible in our Christian life. It's possible to embrace the gospel fully. It's possible to know the Bible well. 
It's possible to have seen God work over and over again. It's possible to have spiritual victories, and yet we have this tendency to drift into self-reliance. I think that's a special temptation when we've gone through an especially smooth stretch of our Christian life, or when we've had a mountaintop experience with God. And the reality for each one of us when we follow Christ is this. We have a daily choice to make, an everyday choice to make. Am I going to trust in my own self-power or am I going to trust in his divine power? Am I going to just function on autopilot in my spiritual life or am I going to rely on the Holy Spirit? See, for each of us, that is a daily choice. And in Matthew chapter 17 today, Jesus is teaching and reminding his disciples of that reality. And he does it in two rather fascinating ways. We really have two different accounts. I want to read both of them. The first one is in chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, and then we're going to look at verses 24 to 27. So I want to read these verses, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Then down in verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, Go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. As we are concluding this series we've had from Matthew 16 and 17, we've entitled Reveal. Uh, The title I've given to today's message is Our Everyday Need. And we're going to be examining these two vivid events, but they're two events that really have the same core lesson behind them. Lesson number one, we find in verses 14 to 20, is this ministry failure of the disciples. 
And lesson number two is the funny fish story that we see in verses 24 to 27. So let's take a closer look at these two lessons. Lesson number one is the ministry failure. Now, I don't know if it hits you or not, but when you read through this, this is a pretty odd and weird story. You know, at a glance, you might say, what practical value does that have for my everyday life? Because it's some story of a boy who had been, um, had a demon in his life who was indwelling him, and the disciples couldn't get that demon out of him, even though they had done that before. And there's a lesson for them to learn from that ministry failure. Now, here's what I believe. I believe when you think of the flow of chapter 17, it's no accident that this event is right here, coming from the events that occurred earlier in the chapter. And it's a very practical thing. Now, before we actually look at this ministry failure, I just want to give a little bit of background. We know from Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 that Jesus had given to the disciples authority to cast out demons. And they had had that ministry. Luke chapter 10 verse 17 tells us they were very successful at that ministry. Now, the other thing that was happening is they were just coming down, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus from the mountain. Remember that earlier in chapter 17? You had the Mount of Transfiguration, what we called the ultimate reveal. And Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are coming down from the mountain. And the reason why is you don't get to live on the mountain, right? We have to live at ground level. And so as they're coming down, there is some commotion that's going on. So Peter, James, and John had been up with Jesus. That left nine of them, right, back on ground level. And when you go to the Gospel of Mark in chapter number 9, we actually get more detail of this whole event. We learn from Mark 9, verse 14, there, there was a large crowd of people gathered around the other nine disciples, and there was this first-class commotion going on. The disciples had been casting out demons from people, and yet they came upon this heartbreaking case where they were unable to deliver this young boy. And just putting some of the details together, no doubt the scribes were hassling, the Pharisees, the Jews, were hassling these nine disciples. You know, they were probably coming up to them and saying things like this with the crowd around them. Hey, we knew you guys were phonies. We knew you were pretenders. You, you really can't cast out demons. Of course, you know, the scribes themselves weren't able to do anything either. But they were likely hassling the disciples. And as they come down, we learn this from Mark 9, 16, Jesus asks the nine disciples, what are you discussing with them, the Jewish authorities? And before they can answer, this father steps up, as we see in verse 14. He comes up to Jesus. He falls down on his knees. He says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's a lunatic. He's very ill. He often falls into the fire, often into the water. I brought him to your disciples. They could not cure him at all. We learn from the Gospel of Luke that this was this man's only son. And he was suffering from far more than epilepsy or some sort of a tumor-induced convulsion. We learn from Mark 9, verse 17, very clearly it says, a spirit, a demon possessed this boy. 
And in Mark 9, verse 22, he goes on to describe more. He said, this demon would often throw his son into the water, trying to drown him, and often throw him into a fire, seeking to destroy his life. By the way, that is the central goal of Satan and his henchmen. See, Satan and his henchmen are out to destroy lives. They are out to destroy marriages. They are out to destroy families. They are out to destroy, yes, churches. He wants to destroy and ruin each one of us. And it's important that we remember that as followers of Jesus, we are on Satan's hit list. And he wants to destroy. He wants to destroy your life, your marriage, your family, and even your church. How does he how does he try to get us to destroy our lives? Well, sometimes he does it through trying to tempt us to indulge in our senses. You know, maybe to get high on drugs, maybe to have sex outside of marriage. Sometimes he tries to induce us to pursue money and to pursue things. Sometimes he tries to get us to pursue power and prestige. Sometimes he does this through trying to elicit conflict and bitterness and unforgiveness. It's interesting, isn't it, how historically the devil is often portrayed as being dressed in red. Sometimes I think he wants to destroy us through fast food restaurants. I mean, have you ever been a little bit suspicious of Ronald McDonald? I mean, his hair is what? Red. You know, it's a little sign. He wants to destroy us. We're on his hit list. And in in, in verse 16 of Matthew 17, he says again, I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't cure him. Now, you just try to read between the lines. Just try to get a feel for what was going on. No doubt, they'd had this success casting demons out of people, and so this father brings his only son, who's had a horrific experience. You know, would you cast this demon out of my son? And I'm sure that they probably said something like this. Yeah, we can do that. I mean, we're very experienced at this. We've done this many times. No problem. We got this. Well, they didn't have it at all. They weren't able to do it. You know, I really think it's easy for us, whether we're talking about ministry or we're talking about the Christian life, to have a similar attitude. I've done this before. You know, I have years of ministry experience. I've taught that class over and over again. You just don't realize. I really know what's coming before it even happens. I've led a small group for years I have it together. I can handle it. I can do it. We can be very much like that. Well, notice Jesus' response in verse 17. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's interesting. Part of his words here, I think, are aimed at, at the general populace, those who have been hearing about Jesus and seen his miracles, and yet were still pushing him aside. Part of what he says here was aimed at them. But part of what he says here was aimed at the disciples. You know, the men that he had chosen who had been with Jesus, who had been granted authority for ministry from Jesus. And I think in part he says to them, how long shall I be with you, guys, 
How long shall I put up with you? Have you ever been amazed at how God puts up with us? You know, the amount of times that we slip up, the amount of times that we really forget about him, the amount of times we just sort of chug along in our own strength, the amount of times that we say stupid things, the amount of times that we fail to honor him. Yes, even the days that we can go without speaking to him. Oh, he's so gracious, isn't he? He's so gracious. At the end of verse 17, he says, bring the boy here to me. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. You know, I don't know, I don't know where they got all this, and I know there's some people who so-called practice being able to deliver people from demons, but it's interesting how they're often portrayed. You know, they have all these incantations, all these gyrations. You got to say this formula, that formula. You got to say it just the right way. You got to quote it in this way. You got to do this. You got to do that. Support. Hey, listen, you don't see that from Jesus. There's no incantations. There's no gyrations. Come out, and the demon comes out. And then the aftermath of this is verse 19. Look at this. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. We don't want to really do this publicly because, you know, we didn't, we failed. So they come to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not drive it out? You can't see this reflected in the English translation, but in the original, the we is very emphatic. Why could we not do this? And I think part of, the, part of the problem was they had assumed that God would automatically work. They had begun to take a mechanical approach to ministry. They were operating in their own self-power. They had drifted into self-reliance. They were really going through the motions. They were on autopilot spiritually. And frankly, they were incredibly impressed with themselves. How do I know that? Well, you look at the first verse of the next chapter. You remember that? They were discussing among themselves which one of us is the greatest. They were very impressed with themselves. Now, what's interesting is in the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus says when they say, why could we not drive him out? Mark in that Gospel says, what is missing is prayer. That's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark which makes sense. Prayer is the most tangible evidence of our dependence on God. In Matthew, what Jesus says is the problem was little faith. Now, by the way, both of them were true. Little faith, that's what Matthew says. Now, I want you to look at verse 20 because we really need to pause here for some Bible study. We need to zoom in on Matthew 17 and verse 20. Because if you have certain translations, you will notice that there are variations of words that are used here. In verse 20, Jesus said to them, why couldn't you drive it out? Because in my version of the littleness of your faith. In other words, because of little faith. But there are some variations 
in some of the manuscripts. You know, we don't have the original manuscripts. We have copies of the manuscripts. And we have a variation here. And by the way, for, I, I want to talk about this for a minute because I don't want people to have their confidence in the word of God undermined. You know, we do have some various different variation of readings in various passages in the New Testament. But here's what I want you to know. When you take all of them together, they make up in the New Testament only about half of a page. The second thing about these variations is no essential teaching is ever affected by the variations. But we do have a variation here. In the oldest manuscripts, and by the way, the New American Standard, the ESV, and the NIV follow the oldest manuscripts generally. There's one reading, and in the newer manuscripts, which are more numerous, we have another reading, and the New King James Version tends to to follow that second group of manuscripts. So stick with me here. This is going somewhere, all right? So in other words, they said, why couldn't we do it? And in this version of chapter 17, we get the term, because of little faith. In the newer manuscripts, you have a different word, which is because of unbelief. Two totally different words in the original. Uh, Here, where it says little faith, you have the word oliga pistis, which is O-L-I-G-O-P-I-S-T-I-S, which literally means little faith. That's why it's translated little faith. But in some of the other manuscripts, you have a different word. It's the word apistia, A-P-I-S-T-I-A, which means unbelief. So they ask the question here in Matthew 17, some of the manuscripts say, oh, the problem was little faith. Some other manuscripts say the problem is unbelief. Which one is the right one? So we'll give you a little Bible study lesson here. This is the way we work through things. Now, I want you to follow as we see it here in in verse 17. He says, or, or rather verse 20, he says, the problem was the littleness of your faith, little faith. But then he goes on to say, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now, when you just look at that, your problem was little faith. What you need to do is have faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest seed that they were aware of, and then you can move mountains. Doesn't that just sound a little bit like a contradiction when you first hear that? What was your problem? Little faith. What do you need? You need to have faith the size of a mustard seed. That ultra little faith. It sounds a little bit at first glance like some sort of double talk. And when you have variations in manuscripts, one of the things you want to try to determine is which one seems more likely to have been changed by someone copying the manuscript. And I think it's this use of the word, insertion of the word unbelief, seems like the most likely thing to happen. It's almost like a scribe was, was going through this and writing, okay, the problem was little faith. Now what you need to do is you need to have faith the size of a mustard seed. I, I think that, does, that sounds a little kind of weird to me. I think I'll change it to unbelief. That's probably what was really meant. It makes more sense to me. It seems more likely that that's what happened. Here's the idea. Whenever you're in Scripture and there appears to be a contradiction or there appears to be something that is nonsensical, it tells us there needs to be further investigation, further examination, further study. I want you to be confident in the Word of God. Let me, let me give you my best understanding of this. I do believe that the older manuscripts are the more accurate here. 
makes much more sense that you would add the other. Here's what I think Jesus was saying. It's interesting, when you study in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus uses this phrase, little faith, a number of times, you see that he really is talking about self-reliance, self-confidence. In Matthew 6, verse 30, Jesus is talking about how he provides for all the birds, all the lilies he dresses, and he will provide for all of your needs. But if you don't believe in that, you have little faith. In Matthew 8, verse 26, remember the disciples are in the midst of a storm. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They wake him up. Jesus, Jesus, wake up. We're perishing. And he says, you have little faith. In Matthew 14, verse 31, remember the story of Peter walking on the water. And then when he begins to take his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink, Jesus says, you have little faith. That little phrase that Jesus uses is a term he uses to describe self-reliance and self-confidence. Remember, the key object, the key in faith is the object of our faith, what we're putting our faith in. And when he says your problem was little faith, he's saying your problem was self-reliance and self-confidence. You were assuming that it would automatically work. You were going through the motions. You were in the middle of self-power. And so I do think the oldest manuscripts are correct here. I mean, think about this. If unbelief was the original term, why would anyone ever change it to little faith and set up this seeming at a glance contradiction. It makes no sense. Jesus is saying, you know what the problem was? Your problem was little faith. You've been self-reliant. You've been self-confident. And again, it's confirmed by what we see in chapter 18. You know, when they're discussing and arguing which one is the greatest, I mean, they were basically saying, who's going to get the T-shirt, the greatest disciple of Jesus? You see, this is what their mindset was at this time. Jesus is saying, you've been self-reliant, but... When it comes to faith in me and faith in God, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which was the smallest known seed of the day, he says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. A lot of times people look at that and they think, what? I mean, we're supposed to do that, move mountains around? I mean, this is not to be taken literally what Jesus is saying here. I mean, we have no record of Jesus in his whole ministry of ever moving a mountain. This is a figure of speech. In fact, we have a similar one given to us in Luke chapter 16 and verse 6. It says there, Jesus speaking, he says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, which by the way, had the most extensive root system of any tree in Israel and could live as long as six centuries, so you're talking about a really strong tree, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted into the sea. See, what he's using here when he talks about faith as a mustard seed and you could say to the mountain and move the mountain, he's using a common figure of speech in the day. He's using a proverbial saying. And here's the idea of what that is communicating. He's saying to them, if, when it comes to trust in me, And trust in God, if you have a small amount of reliance on God, it will lead to surprising results. He's saying, if you have even a little bit of reliance on the power of God, you can accomplish marvelous outcomes. What he's really saying to them is don't slip into auto mode. Don't slip into mechanical mode. Don't go through the motions. See, the lesson is you need to daily depend 
on me. It's our everyday need. And again, prayer is the number one mark and gauge of our dependence. So he's stressing our everyday need. Lesson number one was the ministry failure. Lesson number two is the funny fish story in verses 24 to 27. Notice in verse 24, it says, they came, you know, they'd come down after the mountain, they'd met this whole commotion, and then they came, it says, to Capernaum. Now, Peter was from Capernaum, and they're staying in a house, which was likely Peter's house, and those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter. Now, this particular tax was not collected by the Romans. It was collected by the Jews by Roman position, and it was a tax that would come every year, once a year, for the operation of the temple. And usually it would be collected the month before Passover. And so those who are collecting this tax on behalf of the temple come to Peter, and they say to him, by the way, what's really interesting to me is this is the only gospel this story is told in. It's not, you can go and look in Mark, you can look in Luke and look in John, it's not gonna be there. But I, I find it fascinating that guys collecting a tax show up in this gospel. Why was that? What was Matthew's job before he followed Jesus? He was a tax collector. He's gonna notice things like this. So he includes this story. And they asked the question to Peter, probably had Peter step out of the house and talk to him outside, and they say, is your master, is your teacher, is your leader going to pay the two drachma tax? And Peter says, yes. Why does he say yes? Because he knew that Jesus paid his taxes. By the way, it's interesting what goes on in the so-called Christian world out there, because a lot of times you'll hear this in the Christian world. It's okay to pay your taxes as long as they're being fully responsible with them. If, if they're mishandling the money, if they're misappropriating the money, you don't have to pay. Well, that's not the way Jesus operated at all. You, know, you, you have to understand that these Jewish leaders who were receiving the funds for the care of the temple were themselves corrupt, were themselves individuals who mishandled and misappropriated this two drachma tax on a regular basis. But we learn from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, that that's not a criteria for whether we pay or not. We're supposed to pay. That's what Jesus did. Peter knew that. He pays his taxes. So then Peter, verse 25, comes back into the house, and Jesus speaks to him and says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? See, the members of a royal family were technically exempt from the tax. Well, Peter says, well, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. You know, technically speaking, Jesus says, I'm exempt. And so are you, Peter, because you're with me. However, verse 27 so that we do not offend them. And by the way, there's a lot of humor here. And there's an interesting lesson for Peter and for us and all of this. I mean, I find this so fascinating. We don't want to offend them. So here's what you need to do, Peter. You need to go to the sea and throw in a hook. Take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. 
Now just remember who he's talking to here. Peter is a professional fisherman. And you can just see the message coming to Peter of God's sovereign provision and power. Here's what I want you to do, Peter. I want you to go to the sea. Now, you have to understand, in order for this to all work itself out, in God's sovereign providence, someone needed to take a shekel and to drop it into the sea. That was two days' wages. And then they not only had to drop a shekel into the sea, but it had to end up in a fish's mouth, not swallowed into its stomach, but in its mouth. And then that fish, that particular fish, had to be very close to the shoreline so that when Peter cast his line out there, that was the fish that caught the hook. And then he pulls that fish in, and boom, there's a coin right there. You know, what what message do you think that was communicating to Peter? I will sovereignly provide for you. You just need to trust me. Same message for us. I will sovereignly provide for you. You just need to trust me. You know, I'm so encouraged that the disciples were so much like us. You know, at times they fumbled the ball. At times they forgot their need to depend on the Holy Spirit. At times they were really stumbling around spiritually. At times they went into mechanical mode in ministry. At times they went through the motions and were just self-reliant. I can be like that. You can be like that. Where we fumble the ball, we forget our need to depend on the Holy Spirit, where we stumble around spiritually, where we go into mechanical mode, through the motions, just self-reliant. How can we avoid self-reliance? I'm a practical guy. How can we avoid self-confidence? I'm gonna suggest two action steps that we can take. Here's action step number one. If we wanna avoid self-reliance and self-confidence, We need to develop a mindset of dependence. Remember what Jesus said? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing of eternal value. And so if we're going to avoid self-reliance and self-confidence, we need to develop a mindset of dependence. Here's a suggestion for you to consider. Schedule a morning check-in time with God. It might only be three four minutes long. Maybe it's a time where you just pause before breakfast or you pause before you put on your makeup or you pause before, before you put your car in gear. Or as I often do, when I'm going from my home in the morning, I take time to talk to God where we say something like this to him. God, I want today in my life to be a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Today, I want to experience your grace and your sufficiency, where we just say to God, I need you. If we are going to avoid self-confidence and self-reliance, we need to develop a mindset of dependence. Second action step would be we need to deepen our practice of prayer. How can we do that? Well, I'll tell you what. Here's my suggestion for all of us. Plan to pray. If we don't schedule it, it likely won't happen. Plan to pray. And one thing that can help us in this area, because sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to plan to pray. I'm going to pray. Here I go. I'm going to pray about this one thing that's on my mind. Now, okay, I'm kind of out of ideas here. 
one thing we can do to help us is to learn to pray the scriptures. I'm going to give you several passages you can look at. Psalm 103, Psalm 37, Psalm 139. A great way to deepen our practice of prayer is to pray the scriptures, just to be reading them and interacting with them with the Lord. And that will help us to deepen our practice of prayer. Men and women, we have an everyday need for reliance on Jesus. The disciples had that. We have that. And he is ready to provide it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the confidence we can have in the word of God. It is reliable. We thank you for this great reminder for these two events of the disciples' need and our need to be reliant on you, to avoid going through the motions and just getting mechanical in every way. We have that tendency, Lord, we admit it. We thank you that you are faithful to us, that you will give us strength for today, that you will give us bright hope for tomorrow because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.